Thank you, Pastor Tabby. Hello, Church. I'm so glad to be able to join you and share an exciting portion of the Scripture with you today. We are in the process of rebuilding, perhaps rebuilding jobs, lives, careers, and maybe even relationships. What would be more relevant than to talk about Nehemiah, who is into rebuilding? We're still on the book of Nehemiah, and today we are going to talk about challenges that you and I will encounter almost every day, facing opposition while rebuilding. When you try to accomplish anything significant for the Lord, you're bound to face strong oppositions. Satan never borders with half-hearted people who are contented with a lukewarm spiritual existence. But if you become on fire for Christ, look out. The name Satan means adversary, and he's committed to opposing God and his people, especially when they are zealous to exalt God's glory. Nehemiah was a man that has wholeheartedly committed himself to obeying the Lord in carrying out that which the Lord has laid upon his heart to do, the assignment of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. We hear it from his own fervent prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. His willingness to risk his life to secure permission from King Arcturus and his detailed strategy to rebuild the walls in just 52 days after having led the last return of the Jewish captives to Jerusalem. From the moment he set foot in Jerusalem, he encountered opposition to the cause. This is also true for us on a personal level, isn't it? As long as you live with one foot in the world, like going according to the world's values and for the world's goals, Satan won't trouble you. You can even go to church and pray and read your Bible. He won't mind. But the moment you come off your spiritual laziness, shake off the worldly mindset and commit yourself to a countercultural, and I repeat, a countercultural, a radical obedience to Jesus Christ, you will definitely encounter all kinds of opposition. The enemy is committed to opposing this kind of godly discipleship, and hence opposition will always be around. The enemy will try to get you to be sidetracked or to give up completely. You will notice that in Nehemiah's situation, it was God's will for the wall to be rebuilt. Yet, ah, yet God did not remove the opposition. So even though it is God's will for you to grow strong in faith and to labor to advance the kingdom, God will not remove the opposition. But if you respond properly, the opposition will drive you to depend on the Lord more and to greater determination to do what He has called you to do. But if you give in to opposition, you will quit the race in discouragement or settle for mediocre Christian existence. We all don't want that, do we? Right? Yeah. We have to be ready for such opposition and know how to respond to it by drawing some lessons from Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. In this short passage, we can see how opposition can come from outside and discouragement from inside, generating all kinds of fear in us. Having realized that, we can then find out how we should respond with prayer to continue working and to exercise faith in the face of such fears. In Jesus Christ's name, amen? Right, if you agree, come light up the chat room. Yeah, put amen, type it in. Let's encourage one another. Right, so as you do so, I'm going to read from the first half of Nehemiah chapter 4. Let's read it together, shall we? 
When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their stones in the walls. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn the insult back on their heads. Give them always plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from our sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know or see us, we'll be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you are, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I've looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When the enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. What we have just read describes the challenges we would just slightly face in our current situation, as much as Nehemiah did. It is also interesting to see that at the heat of the opposition built up, it culminated in various aspects and degrees of fear. Perhaps not in Nehemiah, but certainly in the people he led. Then the Lord led Nehemiah to respond to the opposition and fears in three ways. What are the three ways? Praying in the face of opposition, continue working in the face of threats, and exercising faith instead of fear. To pray, to continue working, and to exercise faith. Let's look at it together, right? Starting with the first one, praying in the face of opposition. When news got round of Nehemiah attempting to get the Jews to start rebuilding the works, Sanballat and his cronies started by ridiculing and shaming them with sarcastic questions. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore the wall themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Implying that the Jews are going to fail miserably. After each rhetorical question, Sanballat cronies probably roared with laughter. Then Tobiah added his sarcastic uh, jab at them. Even if a light-footed fox should jump on the joke of a wall, it would come tumbling down. Satan frequently uses ridicule against those who take a stand for the Lord. When you let it be known that you are a Christian, 
your fellow workers will mock you and say, you're a holy man or call you a nun is coming. Then they'll be hoping for you to fall into some sin so that they can taunt you. There you see, we knew you're no different. Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. And you know why they say that? Because your commitment to Christ exposes their godless lifestyle. Sanballat then also became very angry. You can find that in verse 1 and 7. Due to his personal agenda being disrupted, a secure and independent Jerusalem would undermine his control of the trade route through the region and hurt his economy. So he made peace with the Ammonites, the Arabs, and the Philistines, and together threatened to stop the work by violence if necessary. God's work in Jerusalem threatened their lifestyle, and so they got angry. Satan often uses the anger of others to try to quench the newfound joy and zeal of a new believer. Many that were raised in a culturally Asian family like myself, where the gospel was never preached, may be safe outside of the home. Then when a person gets home and joyously tells the parents how Jesus Christ was accepted as Lord and Saviour, what do you think mostly happens? Will they be overjoyed? Hardly at all. More often than not, they will explode. Have you gone insane or other words to that effect? What do you mean you become a Christian? Do you think we raise you up to follow Western ways? What's all this nonsense about being born again and baptism? You don't ever step into a church again. Or worse still, you don't even step into this house again. Like many others, I've had these words thrown at me. Why are they mad or angry? Do you think they'd be happy? Don't you think they'd be happy that the kid wasn't doing drugs or sleeping around instead? Yet they're mad because if the kid gets serious about God, it threatens their culture and perhaps even the worldly, self-centered lifestyle. The same thing happens when a wife meets Christ. Her zeal for God, change of behavior, make her husband realize his wicked ways perhaps, and then he responds with anger. Satan's aim is to get the new Christian to cool his commitment to the Lord. The ridicule, humiliation, and angry responses all generate a fear within the Christian. Fear of being shamed, of rejection, or being left out from the main crowd. Especially for the young Christian, it's not easy to deal with this fear of persecution. Ah, but Jesus reminds us through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.10 that blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul too, as a matter of fact, tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 and subsequently us that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I'm not trying to tell you to put on a sadistic hat or anything like that at all. No, it's not for us to go out there to look for persecution. But persecution will come. And it is when the rubber hits the road, we have to activate our faith to claim the blessing and to attain the godly life. The life that God wants us to have. It's a life of God who wants us to have versus the lifestyle that the world wants you to have. And it's only through this that our courage will deepen and our speaking of the gospel bolder and louder in order to face the opposition. How did Nehemiah respond practically? He prayed the prayer in verses 4 and 5. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. 
turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover us, do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. It wasn't an angry prayer. Nehemiah is a man of prayer, and like King David, he inquired of the Lord every step of the way. In Scripture, it's recorded that he prayed intercessorily, in godly repentance, meditatively, and so on. But this prayer, this prayer in verse 4, is different. What makes it different? It is a prayer, like in many other instances in the Bible. For example, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 59, and Psalm 157. It's about a prayer that appeals for righteousness and the vindication of God's justice. Firstly, this is not a prayer for personal vengeance. Not a prayer for personal vengeance, but rather a prayer that God would act to judge sinners. Secondly, since the enemies were hindering God's work, it was a prayer that God would judge those that oppose His kingdom and glory. Thirdly, to pray for God's kingdom to be established, as in the Lord's Prayer. It's implicitly to pray for all competing kingdoms to be destroyed and put aside. So as Christians, we should pray that God would destroy our enemies by converting them. But if He so chooses, God may also destroy them by pouring out His wrath on them, as He will surely do in the final judgment if they have not repented of their rebellion against Him. So we have to be very careful to guard our hearts against any selfish motives or personal delight in seeing our enemies being brought down. If our hearts are right, we can pray that God would subdue the enemies of the cross, either by conversion or by His justice. Prayer should be our first response to opposition and fear. In Acts 4, after Peter and John's encounter with the Sanhedrin, Together with the saints, they also prayed a similar prayer from verses 23 to 30. And then you know what happened? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and boldly carried on the work of the Lord. Never stopped working. Amen? Never stopped working. They continue on after they prayed. If you agree with me, light up the chat room. Hallelujah. Say amen. Encourage one another. Let's do that. Don't stop working. That brings me to the second point. Continue working in the face of threats. Despite the opposition, the builders continue with doing the Lord's work single-mindedly and wholeheartedly. Nehemiah 4, 6 says, When we rebuilt the wall until all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart, with all their heart. If anger and ridicule don't work, the enemy gets more aggressive. Nehemiah's enemies used threats of violence which they circulated among the Jews living near them. In all likelihood, small bands of terrorists would sneak in and pick off a few of the people working on the wall. And Sanballat would tell Archisus there was just a renegade band that he didn't have control over. So, the threat of terrorist activity put the Jews under immense psychological pressure and fear. Satan still uses subtle or overt threats and intimidation to oppose Christians. Like, for example, if you don't keep quiet over your boss's corruption, you will get fired. Or if you discipline your children, as the Bible says, the authorities will take them away from you. Or if you write anything about Christianity or God in your uni paper, 
the professor will fail you. Or even if you go to church when it reopens, the second wave of COVID will get you. It might sound a little bit absurd, but in reality, these threats have actually been going around. And certainly we bind these untruths, these fake news, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen? Hallelujah. We bind them in Jesus' name. We rebuke them in Jesus' name. These are untruths that are going around. And Satan knows that the halfway point in any work is the most effective time to strike. When the new project begins, there's plenty of enthusiasm. Let's arise and build. Let's do it. But if you get past the midway point and see the completion drawing near, then there is another surge of enthusiasm. We are almost there. Let's complete the race. Let's finish it. But right in the middle of things, exhaustion and discouragement sets in. People may have lost the initial zeal and all they can see are the piles of rubble still waiting to be removed. And that's when they feel like quitting. The same thing is true in your walk with the Lord. When you're first set on fire for the Lord, it's exciting. We're going to win the world for Christ. Every cell or ministry you go to seems fresh or challenging. And your times in the Word or in prayer are rich with new discoveries. You just can't seem to get enough of it. But somewhere, somewhere down the line, the newness wears off. You begin to notice the piles of rubble in your own life and in the church. Problems and sins that just don't seem to go away. And when things become unfavorable, you begin to grow weary, wondering if all your efforts are making any difference for the cause of Christ. Your weariness leads you to discouragement. And this doesn't only happen in individuals. It happens in many churches too. When the going gets tough, the leadership will pray. They will pray and pray and pray, but then they still worry. And then they wait and then they stop working. Why? Why do we need to stop? We cannot stop doing what's right and righteous before the Lord. We can't stop doing that. Stopping is like carrying a bull's eye or target on your back and a sign that says, shoot me. Once we have set our minds and our hearts to work, we're just going to keep on going because of our love for God, not because the circumstances are favorable. The danger is when opposition mounts, as in verses 7 and 8 in the chapter that we read. The enemy sees our discouragement, and especially if we set up a pity party and start complaining and murmuring among ourselves. That's when we will fall prey. But it need not be so if we are hard-focused and hold our heads up high. Francis Frangipani, a pastor, writer, and a founder of the River of Life Ministries, taught me an important spiritual principle through his writings. The tougher the opposition and the greater the disappointment, the more you should be encouraged because that's when you know you're going along God's directed path. Let me repeat that. The tougher the opposition and the greater the disappointment, the more you should be encouraged because that's when you know you're doing the God thing. Think about it. If what you're doing is not making a dent in the enemy's stronghold, why should he bother disrupting your plans? Everything should be hunky-dory then, right? Ah, but if you're really making a difference in advancing God's kingdom into Satan's territory, that's when things begin to heat up. He will rally his minions against you and things may become unfavorable. That's when you know you're doing the right thing doing the Lord's work. In other words, disappointments and discouragements are inevitable 
in doing the Lord's work, but don't let it get you down. Be encouraged and continue working. There is one proviso though. Like Nehemiah, you have to commit it first to the Lord in prayer and set up a guard. In verse 9 it says, But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Look out constantly for the signs and make sure it is not your own foolishness that got you into trouble and disappointment in the very first place. Now, prayer isn't a magic formula to dispel all harm. Prayer doesn't mean you can ignore the enemy's threats or pretend they don't exist. Nehemiah was vigilant to arm the workers and to post guards around the clock. Also, he put into place an alarm system so that whenever the trumpet was blown, help would come to defend their families and the city. Vigilance is important. If a report came to us during church that a dangerous lion has escaped from the zoo and will be somewhere nearby, would you stroll to your car in a normal fashion? Would you let your kids out loose outside? Of course not. You would arm yourself and be on guard constantly for fear of that lion on the loose. Yet many Christians are oblivious to the dangers that come from our adversary, the devil, who prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking to devour us, as written in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. They go out into the world without putting on the full armor of God, and they hung out with worldly friends and filled the mind with the filth and the lowdown of Hollywood and the latest Netflix. They let the kids wash, watch the trash on TV. And after the kids are in bed, the parents tune in to the shows for more mature audiences, mature in evil, but not in godliness. And then they wonder why they have family problems. If you don't want to fall victim to the enemy, you've got to set up a defense against him in advance. Block the opportunities for moral filth from your life and home. Set up a family altar. Spend time each day saturating your mind with God's Word. Have a network of brothers and sisters in the Lord where you can rally together when the enemy attacks. Join the cell. Be in the ministry. To be unaware of the enemy is to be vulnerable. Nehemiah and his people responded to the enemy's opposition by lifting up their voices in prayer and putting their hearts and their minds to work and kept on working and watching out for the enemy. And finally, they exercised faith instead of fear. The criticism, mockery and threats came from the enemies outside. But the negativism came from the Jews themselves that lived near the enemy. These people were not involved in the work of rebuilding the wall. And that is significant. You know why? They lived near the enemy. They were at the fringes. So they were constantly exposed to his negative attacks on the work. But they weren't involved personally in the work. Likewise, negativism in the church comes from professing Christians who live near the enemy but are not involved in the Lord's work. Many will be expressing emotions but not exercising faith. Such negativism is the enemy of faith. Nehemiah didn't ignore the very real danger that existed, but he had listened to every naysayer that came along the way. He never would have finished the wall. I love this quote by Winston Churchill. He says, 
You will never reach your destination if you stop at every barking dog. Nehemiah exercised faith and turned away from negativism. Fear is a cumulative effect of all the above factors. The people had seen the enemy's anger and had heard the mockery and threats. They were wearing down through exhaustion. Then they repeatedly heard doom and gloom from the fellow Jews who lived near the enemy. Nehemiah saw their fear and encouraged them not to be afraid. Satan uses fear to paralyze God's people and to keep them from attempting anything significant for the Lord. Maybe it's a fear of failure. You've never done it before. You've never tried out this new job. You've never tried out this new assignment or this new project. And you don't know if you can do it. Maybe it's a fear of rejection. There's this relationship you're trying to build up with a friend or that, that break in a relationship in a family. But if you try it, others will think you are a fanatic and stand off away from you. It may be a fear of conflict. If you do what God wants you to do, you know that you attract flack. So you back off. These are some of the tactics that Satan uses to oppose God's work, both in projects that people undertake in advancing the Lord's work and in individual hearts that want to advance spiritually. How should we respond to such opposition? Nehemiah did two things. It's recorded in verses 13 to 14. First, he responded in faith to plug the holes, to rectify the weaknesses, intentionally addressing the fear factors. What are the fear factors? The fear of being attacked at the weakest or lowest point, where the city defences may be breached. All of us have some degree of weaknesses or hidden sin. Some perhaps more, while others less. But rather than wait till it's exposed or breached, you can deal with it by doing away with the weakness. Today itself, right now, totally surrender to Christ and watch Him do a tremendous transformation and then being subsequently accountable for it by being, having someone stationed there. Then there is the fear for family. Satan doesn't fight fair and he goes for the weakest link in the chain, usually a family member. By having the family close by allays this fear. How much time do we spend in building familial bonds and ties? The lockdown has generated some very good reports of family relationships being strengthened and even family altars being built. Let's intentionally resolve to continue doing it. And if you have not started, please start doing so. You will see God working powerfully within your family, even in the next generation and the next generation like how the Malaysian blessing goes. Then there is a fear of being ill-equipped. Nothing is worse than being ill-prepared or ill-equipped. It's suicidal to, spend an to send an unprepared army out to the front line for spiritual warfare. While Nehemiah provided swords, spears and bows, we need to equip ourselves with the sword of the Spirit. That is the Word of God in Ephesians 6. And spears together with bows that will send arrows to pierce and defeat the powers, the authorities, the rulers, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have to intentionally digest chunks of scripture, at least two to five chapters daily, and pray regularly. We are now coming to a season of a prayer momentum, 
where in the pastoral districts we have these prayer altars every week. And then we're going to go into the 40 days prayer and fasting. This is a good time to allow God to prepare our hands for spiritual battle. Come on, if you agree with me, encourage one another. Let's write in the chat, in the light up the chat room. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Then Nehemiah reminded them, and this is very important. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. You might recall that the people were discouraged because they had gotten a focus onto the enemy's threats, the piles of rubble and all the work left to do. Nehemiah rightly directed the faith back to the Lord who is who is great and awesome and to the things that were at stake if they yielded to the enemy, namely the families. When opposition hits, it's easy to get your eyes off the Lord and onto your problems. At such times, stop. Stop. And as Paul says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. If you're tempted to some sin, remember the devastating effects that you will have on your family. Get God's perspective on your situation. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also. There's always a Kalua sign that you may be able to endure it. As God is faithful, keep your faith focused on the Lord. Exercise your faith instead of giving in to fear. The American historian Will Durant observed, Rome remained great as long as she had enemies who forced her to unity, vision, and heroism. When she had overcome all of her enemies, she flourished for a moment and then began to die. Isn't that true? Opposition kept Rome strong for over a thousand years. Enemies, ridicule, problems, threats, discouragement, Opposition comes in all different forms, but don't ever stop praying in the face of opposition, working in the face of threats, and exercising faith instead of fear. When we intentionally apply this, God acts concurrently. In verse 15 that we read just now, it says, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, God had frustrated it. We all returned to the wall and each to our own work. It is mentioned that God frustrates his enemies. Remember, it is the great and awesome God that gave them the success in rebuilding the wall, not by their own cleverness or hard work. So when God is for you, who can be against you? In Job chapter 5, verse 12, it says, God towards the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. And the psalmist says in Psalm 33 verse 10, the Lord follows the plans of the nations. He towards the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stands firm forever and the purposes of his heart through all generations, not only for your generations, but through all generations. Each time you push the enemy back, each time you stand firm in the evil day and survive some fresh assault of the devil, God is with you. And you need to know because of him and his resources, you are able to stand. I know of nothing more comforting 
and uplifting than the daily awareness that we are not fighting the battle alone. King Jehoshaphat stood in his temple, in the temple of God, and said, the battle is not yours, but the Lord's. That was prophesied onto his situation. Do you see what a great truth this is? The battle is not yours, but the Lord's. You've just got to realize, as you fight the good fight, as you wrestle against the principalities and powers and face the threats and the assaults of the world, the flesh and the devil, God is involved together with you and Christ is the captain of our salvation. And finally, think about this. If the battle is the Lord's, who do you think will win ultimately? God cannot fail. Truth and righteousness cannot be defeated. Victory is the Lord's. This is the theme of the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Victory is the Lord's. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let us close with a song that goes by this. I'm going to see a victory. Wherever you are, if you really believe in that, let's stand up and sing it unto the Lord and give God the glory. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord, for you are Lord the victor, the Lord of hosts, the rider who comes riding back on the white horse with the heavenly host. And on your name is written, the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, Lord. And we know that, Lord God, that not only will you come back as a triumphant King, Lord God, but even in this day and age, in our current situation, you are with us every step of the way. For you are the same Lord who has walked upon the path to Calvary, Lord. That you laid upon the cross and you say, forgive them, for they do not know what they have done. And you suffered every suffering that is known and conceivable to man, Lord and you died on our place, that we may now have this victory together with you from Calvary, Lord God. And we thank you, Lord God, that we can come into your presence day by day. And I want to pray a blessing over my dear brother and sister who are out there listening, Lord God, that each one of them will experience and taste of this same victory right here, right now, today even, in the, where their homes are, in the workplaces, in the neighbourhood, in the community, even in this land, Malaysia, Lord God, that, Father, you will do a mighty work and we are lifting up our hearts and our voices and our praises unto you in expectation of what you're going to do, Lord God. We thank you, we pray you, Father. And as we depart each from each other, even though we may be separated by mouse, but Lord, we are connected through this technology, the internet, Lord God, but as we depart from each other's presence and your presence, Lord God, that Father, I pray that the love of the Father will surround each and every household that's represented out there. You will encourage them. You will continue to bring strength unto them, that they will have enough grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to go through and meet every challenge and opposition along their path, Father God. And most of all, Father, that we be all united and bound as one in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that this may be our blessing until we meet together again soon, Lord God. We thank you. We return thanks to you in the precious, the most worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of God's people say, Amen. 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 Thank you, church. Thank you, church. May you be blessed and have a great week ahead and do join us again in the week that is to come. Hallelujah. Thank you.